I want to begin by uh, telling all of you how much I love you. And um, I'm not saying that in the mushy kind of way. I'm saying that in the, the real kind of way that um, when I look around and I look at every single one of your faces, I am so glad that you're here. I am so glad that you love the Lord. I'm so glad for what he's done in your life. I praise God for all of you as I look around. Uh, it's a beautiful thing to see, and I'm so glad uh, for each one of you. And uh, today for chapel, you know where I was going with this whole thing of uh, bold moves this year and all that, and praying through what God wanted me to do over the last more than a week that I've been praying a lot about this time for chapel, it's going to end up being one of those uh, things that you might see happen this Sunday on Super Bowl Sunday when one of the quarterbacks comes up to the line and he observes the defense and suddenly um, he switches modes and, and goes and calls an audible and changes the play right there and then on the spot. And that's what happened to me. Um, as I've prayed through and talked through what to do here today, um, this got called in a different way. It made me think of the verse in the book of Jude where he says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Jude saw a danger coming to that church, to the people that he's writing to, and he goes, man, I, I really wanted to do this, but I felt I had to do this because there's something I need to talk to you about and warn you about in that way. And in a sense, that's what we're going to do today. Uh, there is something that I want to warn you about, to talk to you about, but I, I want you to see it in light of love, in light of the triumph that Christ has secured for us, because what I'm going to ask you to do today is to join me in a battle. I want to ask all of you individually, personally, to join me, commit your heart to joining me in a battle. And I think there's a specific way that we at Montana Bible College are under attack. It's nothing new. It's happened since the beginning of time. Um, and specifically in the, since the church was begun in the book of Acts, you can see that Satan has always liked to attack the church in various ways. But I'm coming to you for help because as the president of the Bible College, this is not a battle I can fight on my own. It's one that I need all of you to fight with me. And it's really a battle that you're going to need to fight your entire life. As you go into whatever ministry God places you in, whatever church you're in, I guarantee this will be a battle that you must fight. So I'm asking you to start. Uh, maybe some of you already have, but I'm gonna ask you to start fighting with me now. We're going to follow a chiastic structure today as we do this. Let's see if I can bring this up. So I've just shared with you the goal for today, that you would join me in a battle. We're going to talk now about the attack strategy of the enemy. What does that look like? And then I want to narrow that down to our specific situation at NBC. And obviously it can go lots bigger than that, and it will for you in life and ministry, but I want to specifically apply that right now. And then we go back out to that B level, our counterattack strategy. What do we do to fight this battle? And finally, I want to ask you 
to make a commitment to join me in that battle. So that's the structure of what we're going to do today. So let's begin by looking at the attack strategy of the enemy. You see these words over here, kill, steal, destroy. You know that comes straight out of the scripture. This is his business. This is what he does. It's what he's doing all the time. And so we need to say, how? How does the enemy attack us? I'll list a number of ways very quickly. Persecution. You might think of overt persecution. You might think of the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation and the mention of multiple ways that they were being persecuted physically, even unto death. Um, There's physical harm, though, that the enemy would like to bring. Sometimes you might think of the character by the name of Job or the woman who shows up in Luke chapter 13, who is crippled by a demon for 18 years. Satan is in the business of bringing those kinds of um, affirmities to people as well. There's temptation. And of course, that goes back to Adam and Eve And it goes on all the way down to you and me, but it comes in many forms. You might think of the Lord Jesus being tempted by Satan. You might think of uh, Acts chapter 6, where Ananias and Sapphira were so tempted by Satan that they would end up lying about this property that they had sold. And to the Holy Spirit, Peter says, or maybe in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, where it tells us that Satan tempts people sexually. That's a common form of temptation. He tempts us in many ways. He's not called the tempter for nothing, is he? So we know that he's attacking in those ways. There's times when Satan is at work hindering ministry from happening. The Apostle Paul speaks in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18. He says, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. We're not quite sure. He doesn't go into an elaboration on how Satan stopped him, but he did. And there was multiple accounts in the book of Acts where they tried to go somewhere and sometimes couldn't. Interesting things there. So there's hindering there. I think Satan does a lot of counterfeiting work. And again, in 2 Thessalonians, um, the Apostle Paul says, The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. So he's a counterfeiter. Paul says Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He puts on a good show in that way. And finally, I listed right up here, heresy, destructive heresies, actually, the um, Apostle Peter in chapter 2 verse 1 talks about false teachers who will introduce destructive heresies in the church. And that'll happen. Maybe instead of just thinking about specific ways that Satan would attack, let's think for just a moment about some broad general categories. I think um, those of you who've been in family development with me have heard me talk about this one. Satan likes to attack marriage. Why? He's done it since the very beginning. Because it's so central. It is the foundation of all relationship that God has established on earth, a family unit. And more than that, it is the picture that God has established of his relationship with his people. This beautiful picture of marriage is to signify what God's relationship with his people can look like. And Satan always loves to attack marriage. And hence, down through all of history, we see a history of sexual perversion all down through the world's history of the relational wreckage that comes from the pain and anger and wrath that flows out of marriages that are unhappy, destroyed, broken up, and it it is unleashed on generation after generation by those who have felt its destructive power. 
Satan also likes to attack truth, doesn't he? And you know that happened clear back in the Garden of Eden, and it's happening still today. But Satan always will attack truth. He wants people to believe a lie. Satan is called a liar and the father of lies. He's the deceiver. He will always attack the truth. Maybe you want to think about billions of people right now entrapped by uh, false religions like Islam and Buddhism and down the list we could go. All of those things. He loves to attack truth in any way he can. If he can sow it into the church, he'll do it there in the form of heresy. If he can do it broadly in the world, he will. There's all kinds of lies out there. Maybe one of the most pervasive today is that there's all kinds of many paths to heaven when scripture would teach us that there is actually a very broad road leading to destruction and there's one way to salvation, the name of Jesus Christ. Wow, he will always attack truth. And finally, I want to list this category. There's probably more categories we could list, but for today, this will get us to where we're going. Um, He attacks unity. I think Satan will always seek to destroy unity. Why? Because in the church, if he can destroy unity, then he can destroy our witness to a world. Jesus has talked about the witness of the church to the world, and Satan will always go after that. There's the old military saying, divide and conquer. This is a documentary on World War II titled Divide and Conquer, talking about the strategy of doing that militarily. If you want to conquer something, divide what you're going after to weaken it, and then you can conquer it. When Jesus, remember, was accused of casting out demons by demonic power, do you remember how he answered? He gave this very universal truth. He says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. But of course, if God's people are divided against themselves, they don't stand either. They are quickly taken down. Satan knows that he can weaken the church to the extent that he can divide the church. And I think he does that all the time. You've heard of church splits. Some of you have lived through church splits, haven't you? Painful. Think of the, all the the questions and, and heartache and pain that's brought up in that church split. And then think of what it does to damage the witness of that church in a community wherever they're at. Sometimes even for generations. You'll talk to people in a community and say, you know, try to share the gospel. And they say, yeah, but those Christians, I know about them. And look at what they've done. And they've split. And this town is divided. And there's that church over there and that church over there. And they won't talk to each other. And you see the witness of the church devastated. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7, the Apostle Paul is talking about Um, believers taking each other to court. And he says, the fact that you have lawsuits among you means you are completely defeated already. Like you're just playing into the enemy's hand here, folks. If you want to fight against each other, you're going to lose every time. So 
I want to specifically talk about the situation at NBC here for a little while. And I believe with all my heart that we are experiencing persecution in various forms at all times. Some of you are experiencing forms of overt persecution probably right now through your job, maybe through family connections, unbelieving friends. So that's there. I believe that um, we are being tempted often. That form of attack is there all the time. You're facing it every day. But the specific form of attack that I want to focus on for today is this attack where I think that the devil would love to attack us in this area of unity, and he would love to destroy us. Uh, We're not alone in being attacked this way. So don't think, oh my goodness, some drastic emergency at NBC. I'm not saying that. I'm saying this is common to God's people all throughout. If you look in the book of Acts, the church gets started and then right off the bat, hardly any time goes by and the Hebraic Jews are complaining against the um, the Hellenistic Jews, complaining against the Hebraic Jews about this distribution of food. And right away we have conflict and it's already there. We could start to divide and on and on it goes. The story of Acts continues and you can see division and division and then the letters are written to the churches and all of a sudden there's multiple instances where we're dealing with division coming into the church. It's one of the ways that Satan's going to attack us. So it shouldn't surprise us that it does attack us and that we do know that that is real. And I think because it's that unity is so critical that Satan loves to attack it. Here's John chapter 17, Jesus' prayer and just a piece of it. Jesus has prayed for his disciples already and then he expands that prayer out and he says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. There's some really deep theological stuff going on in here that we don't have time to jump into. And Gail probably would do a lot better job explaining it than I would. Uh, May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And Jesus specifically ties his people's unity with his church's witness. It's going to be something that goes together. So I think it's extremely important. Um, You might ask, so Ryan, um, what evidence do you have that NBC is under attack in this area of unity? Uh, how, How do you know that? So before I tell you, because this is sensitive, I want to tell you that this sermon is not aimed at any individual in particular or any individual circumstance, okay? So I just made eye contact with Jack. I am not looking at Jack because I think there... So if I make eye contact with you, it's not because I'm picking on you, okay? Otherwise, I'd have to just shut my eyes and I can't make eye contact with anybody. So I want you to hear that and know that from me. This is, in general, something that all of us must deal with. So with that said, um, I want to also say... I commend so many of you where I do see so much work toward unity in your lives. I know that. I can look around and I could just start naming examples where I see you guys working toward building that unity here in this community. So praise God for that. Good job and keep it up. Um, But let's talk about evidence if there is some, and I think there is, that we are under attack in this area. 
I would say I have my personal observations. I've been at Montana Bible College now 11 and a half years. And combine that with the observations of faculty and staff, people who are close to on our team as we talk about what's going on at NBC and we think through things, and students like yourselves who I talk to and you talk to me and RAs and um, our peacemaking class. We were just talking about some of this last week. And so we have plenty of evidence in that sense. And what I would just say in my 11 and a half years being at NBC is that I would say in the last probably three to four years, I have noticed an uptick in that specific form of attack. And some of you, most of you haven't been here that long, so you wouldn't know the difference. But I have observed that, that there seems to have been more attack coming in that area than in the past. Maybe I was just oblivious to it before. I don't know. But that would be my observation. And I would sense that that's confirmed by some others as well. I don't know even if I could list all the reasons for you why, other than that I know that the enemy would love to do it, and he would love it if he could come in to any good work that God does, and he could blow it apart with division. So I think that's enough reason right there to know why that's happening. Uh, I don't know if I could pinpoint what a quote-unquote normal level of that attack would be, in the church, it's always there. It's always going to be there. You're going to find it in every church you're ever at, every family. It's going to be there. But it seems like you go through times where that attack is heightened for whatever reasons. So I think we've been in one of those. I, I can't confirm that through empirical evidence, but I think there's enough witness corroboration to say that. How does that attack show up specifically at Montana Bible College? I want to describe it in three different levels for you, if I can. Personal relationships, and what I'll call school relationships, and then external relationships. So it kind of goes from small to bigger to bigger is the way I'm thinking of it. And so let's talk about each of those for a minute. Whoops, I guess I was going to go back here. We'll leave those alone. Personal relationships here for a minute. What do I mean by this? Well, you know that it can simply start with one person being offended at another. And it happens all the time in all of life, everywhere. Um, you live with a roommate. You have a family member. It doesn't matter where two people are together. Somebody does something and it offends another person. That's going to happen. But conflict begins. And when that happens, if we don't follow a biblical pattern of handling conflict, pretty soon we end up in a place where our relationships become divided. Those of you in peacemaking class, this last week we put up that diagram on the screen, if you'll remember, and we say, how does the world handle conflict? Does one person just go to another person as the Bible tells us to? Simply go to your brother if you have something against them or if they have something against you and resolve it? Oh no, that's not how the world handles conflict, is it? We have a conflict and we go to somebody else and we tell them about it. And we go to another person and we tell them about it. And then we just happen to meet another person and we tell them about it. And then they tell other people about it. And pretty soon a whole community knows about our conflict and we've never even taken an action to resolve it. Correct? You've witnessed this all over the world, haven't you? And you've also witnessed that worldly pattern infiltrating whatever church you've ever been a part of. You've witnessed it at Montana Bible College. I know it happens here too. We don't always handle conflict the way Scripture tells us to. And so that's a part of it. It begins in our personal relationships. It's pretty easy to identify. Another person comes up to you and starts airing their gripe against another person. You got it. It's going on right now. Now, 
Can we ever get help from another person? Sure. We talk about that in peacemaking as well. You go get help so that you can come right back and it doesn't spread. It's not going in a gossipy direction and you're getting help from a wise, trusted, godly person. You know what we sometimes do? We go, maybe I'll talk to my friend about this because I could get some help. You know, I, I feel really uncomfortable talking to this person who I've offended. Um, so we get their opinion. We've shared that situation with them. And then, then we, I don't know, I think I need a little more help. I'm going to go to somebody else. I, I, I could use a little more advice. Matt, could we talk about it too? I, I, I need a little more advice. And, and by the time we're done getting advice, pretty much everybody knows. And we still haven't gone and made it right. We still haven't gone to the person. So there needs to be a, a caution in there, a, a wisdom in there. How do we biblically handle conflict without spreading it all over the place? Because God tells us to go to the brother or sister who has offended us or whom we realize we have offended, to go, simply go. So division creeps in, in personal relationships. It's a little bit um, more subtle when we uh, perhaps ignore it in our life and we just hope it'll blow over the escape side of the slippery slope that you're all familiar with. And, and we start just ignoring things that are going. We let it go. We let it build. We hope it'll go away. We just don't really want to deal with it. That feels uncomfortable. And we sort of just let relationships cool off. And they may eventually just shrivel up like a leaf and crackle and blow away in the wind. And that relationship is gone because we've let it die because we didn't want to deal with the conflict. So that's one way that the enemy would love to divide us personally, individually, little groups of people divided, an apartment divided, a friendship divided, a um, class divided, whatever it would be that he would love to do. I want to take that up a level to the school relationships. And what I mean by this is that because of who we are as a college, we also have like systems and so forth in place that are then places where conflict can happen. So what are you talking about, Ryan? Okay, we have classes and teachers who teach classes. Could any conflict ever erupt because of that? Could there be division because of that? Oh, no. The academic dean doesn't think so, so it doesn't exist. I mean, he's smiling. He, yes, of course it can. It's a prime place. How does it happen? Oh, it happens when... Again, I'm not picking on any particular individual. I have nobody in my mind as I say this, but I know these kinds of comments happen because I was a student once too. I can't believe that teacher gave us that assignment. He's such a jerk. Can you believe he would do that? He doesn't even understand anything about us. Why is, and on and on and on it goes. Or maybe it happens in a different sort of college system. Uh, maybe it's the, the business office. I don't think they treated me fairly. Blah, 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 blah. Or maybe it's in a different system. I'm looking at Micah back there. The discipleship process. We have disciplers and disciplees. I don't like who he paired me with. What a jerk. Blah, 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 blah. Um, on and on it can go. Oh, quiet time. Danny mentioned that today. He's going to make us sign in. He can't even, we're not even going to be able to put an X on there. He's going to make us put the time. What a jerk. Do you know how that goes? <laughs> how these discussions get, get rolling? And, and when one person gets a discussion like that rolling, it's very easy for other people to jump on board and sort of feed with that. And, and it's, if we're not careful, all of a sudden there's a, a whole negative undercurrent about a 
class or a teacher or about a, a system at some point in level. Because we have to function in some way as a school. That's just the, the nature of our situation. And yet our situation can lend itself then to various kinds of conflict. Do you remember when the Israelites came out of Egypt? One of the things that the Bible talks about that happened quite a bit is that the Israelites would do something that the Bible calls grumbling. And you don't even really have to know the specific words to know what grumbling is like, because you just kind of know the sound of it. It's like kind of talking, right? About whatever it is, okay? You can use your own words and fill in the blanks about what they are, but you know that kind of conversation, don't you? We know what that is where we start to grumble against something, against a leader like Moses, against an institution, against a class, against whatever it might be. It's easy to get a grumbling spirit going rather than a humble spirit that says, man, this doesn't seem right to me. I don't think it feels fair. I think I should go talk to whatever person is in charge of that and, and sit down and share my heart about that and see what they say and if we can work something out and, and make a change because these people actually love me. They really care. Maybe we should talk. And wow, what a difference that can make. And, and what if they don't agree? And what if they say, well, you still have to put your time down. You can't just put an X. Is there a spirit of then that, okay, that's what God wants for me right now in that submission to authority. I will do it. So that's a way that it happens. Maybe what I would have you do right now is just in your own mind, if you can do this, review your conversations, maybe over this school year semester, and just, just review in those conversations you've had in the dorm rooms or in the hallways or over in the coffee shops or wherever those take place. Um, would those be things that you would say to that person's face? If the person that you're talking about had been walking around the corner and overheard what you said, would you have been embarrassed about it? Would you have felt the need to explain yourself? What I really meant was, would you be embarrassed? Um, do I really know what that person believes or am I just parroting what someone else said that they believe? Do my comments help others respect that person and maybe go to that teacher's class with an attitude ready to learn or do my comments help other people? Do I have to go to class today? I don't know. Those are the things that you can review in your own heart, in your own mind as you think through that. Uh, one more level of here. So that was school relationships. Let's talk about external relationships because at the Bible college, you come from a bunch of different places and you go to a bunch of different places. There's a bigger relational sphere than just what happens in, in our building. And that happens in multiple ways. How could that come into the Bible college? Well, number one, just by nature of who we are, we're a non-denominational Bible college. Means a whole bunch of people from various backgrounds come here to go to college and that's a good thing. We want that to be the case. That's a wonderful thing. But inherently, doesn't that just provide some fodder for division right there? You come having various backgrounds and beliefs and ideas of what the Bible teaches here. And, and because truth is so important, we all want to 
hang on to the truth and defend the truth. And all of a sudden, those little debates that get started about what the Bible really teaches can start to ratchet up in their heatedness. And sometimes people get a little bit bent out of shape because I don't think that person believes like I do. And I'm right. And I am right. Yes. And they're wrong. And I need to be able to defend that. And all of a sudden, we can get division going really easily just because we're a group of people that came from a lot of different backgrounds. We're also a group of people who are are gathered here at Montana Bible College, but you end up in churches all around the valley. Some of you are here at Grace Bible Church. Others of you are at Manhattan Bible Church, where I'm at. And I could start naming a bunch of other churches that you're part of. And you know what's interesting about that? People can start these conversations amongst about churches too, right? I'll never go to that church because blah, 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 blah. Oh, I don't like that church because blah, 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 blah. You wouldn't catch me dead in there. You, he teaches, he does, they minister like this, they don't do this, they do that. On and on and on it can go about churches. And yet if we boil that down and we bring it back, okay, we're going we're gonna to pull it inside this realm where we're not talking heresy here, okay? We're not talking um, the Mormons believe that you can be saved by your good works or something like that. We're talking about Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches in my illustration right now, okay? Then we have to be really careful about how we speak of others with whom we don't always feel like we have the perfect fit. One person says, well, that church's worship is blah, 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 blah. Way to you fill in the blank. Stiff, charismatic, whatever. I mean, it goes both ways in any of those discussions. The preaching at that church is to this or is to that, or the church is too big or too small or the whatever it is, we can get all kinds of these discussions going around those areas, can't we? My, so the decision about chapel and what I was going to say spills over. Um, I did a bunch of work about a year ago. I actually wrote up a whole document about just a study for myself biblically about what do we do? How do we handle disagreement in the bigger picture as church in the, in the world? How do we do this? And so I'm actually going to make that my last chapel sermon for the, the semester. And we're going to expand that area and say, what do we do with that? I'll give you the document. And you can read it and critique it and, and start some division over it. <laughs> um, but we'll do that. Let me move on because I think we know the problem. Here's what I want to focus on, our counterattack strategy. What are we going to do about it? How can we work against that? How do we counter what the enemy would love to do to divide us? Now, you already heard Jesus' prayer, John 17. Man, what an incredible prayer capturing the heart of Christ for his church. This is what he wants for us. It's what he was praying for us. I'm going to just take you to the book of 1 Corinthians and give you a quick flyover for a second. There's a lot dealing with conflict and division in the book of 1 Corinthians. So quickly, let me do this. Um, Here's what he says. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, I'm going to read for you quite a bit of scripture here, okay? I'm going to fly over. I'm going to leave that one up there, 
And I want you to think about what he says in light of that. He says, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? And then I'm skipping down to chapter um, 3 now. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I give you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Skipping down to chapter three later, he says, so then no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, skipping all the way down to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you know that Paul develops the image of the human body for a little ways. I'm just going to give you part of it. He says, the body is a unit. Though it is made up of many parts, and though its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. We were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the, part, to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the hand cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. Well, our presentable parts need no such special treatment. But God has combined the parts of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, you are the body of Christ. Isn't that good news for you? For all of us? You are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, 
God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, those speaking in different kinds of languages. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? The answer to these is no, no, no. Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But eagerly the dot eagerly desire the greater gifts and now I will show you the most excellent way you're not used to thinking of 1 Corinthians 13 as flowing from 1 Corinthians 12 but it does and now I will show you the most excellent way he says if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love I am nothing if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And he goes on to describe the time when we will see face to face the imperfection and, and that all these things before fade away like the childishness that they are. So what's my point in reading all of that scripture to you? I want to challenge you then to, number one, embrace that appeal that is made. Will you say, that's what I want. That's what I want for my church. That's what I want for every place that I go in my life, everywhere I want to be. And secondly, will you take the action then to stop division? These are some interesting scriptures here, and I'll take them. They're, they're very short and easy. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them. And then he says, warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. Why do you isolate the divisive person? Because if they're all by themselves, they can't divide anybody else. So will you take the action needed if there actually were a person who is causing division that shows up in your church in your dorm room in your family will you take the action needed to say i need to sit that person down and, and warn them help them understand how serious it is to be spreading something that hurts other people something that creates negativity and moves all around and goes places guess what you're the person who heard it so you're the person who's going to have to step up to take action to deal with it. That's why I said, I need your help. I can't fight this on my own, nor can I enlist our staff or our faculty to do it all. It's going to take everybody together, working together to do this. Um, this might sound like a really dumb illustration, but do you remember the um, movie Finding Nemo? And there's the little scene where all the fish are being caught in the fisherman's net and it's lifting them up and they're all in confusion. And they can't get anywhere. And then, yay, go little Nemo. He goes out there and he says, hey, everybody, we got to pull together, you know, this way, this way. And then they all start pulling together and everybody goes. To, and when they do, they can finally have the strength to overcome the fishing net. Woohoo! So what we need to do is pull together. 
in this area, in all kinds of areas. But this is how we do it. We come together and we all agree together. This is the way we're going, together. And it takes all of us together to pull together in those ways to see the impact that we want to see. So that's why I need your commitment to do this. And I think ultimately it's going to happen when we live out our true identity as who we are in Christ. My son Caleb and I are memorizing this passage right now. I'm going to try to say it, see how far I can get. But you watch what Paul does in this passage where he goes, this is how we live based on who we are. So he says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. This doesn't sound like Romans 1. Great, now I'm going to get off. Due to the hardening of their hearts, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of evil practice with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with, your former, with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted, is that right? By its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, which is being re... <laughs> ah, where did it go? To be renewed in the attitude of your minds, to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. There it is. I'm sorry, I missed the most important part. <laughs> ah, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And you know what he starts to do then? He did the put off the old self, put on the new self, and then he starts to describe those. Then take off this and put on this, and take off this and put on this. And just a couple verses later, here's what he says Do not let any unwholesome talk, this is the put off, come out of your mouths. But only what is helpful, now we're going to put on, for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Here's what I want you to do. I'd like you to commit to living out this verse right here. No unwholesome talk. We'll shorten it down. No U-T. Okay? No unwholesome talk. Unwholesome talk. Some translations um, translate as corrupting or filthy. Unwholesome is the idea of something that's not healthy. Junk food coming out of your mouth that other people consume and it does not nourish them, okay? Let nothing like that come out of your mouth, but only what is, what? Helpful for building others up according to their needs. What do they need from us? What will build them up today? How can I strengthen my brothers and sisters in Christ so that it benefits those who listen? That's the kind of talk to come out of our mouths. Would you commit to that together? No unwholesome talk. That's my goal. That's my life. That's who I am in Christ. I am the person who has been created new, who's got the new self in me, who is going to now live out of my identity in Christ, the reality of that living in me. I'm going to live that out. So I'm asking you right now to commit with me to join in that battle. Now, today, tomorrow, for the rest of your life. This is the altar call moment, right? The, the moment when I should say, all right, everybody, stand up. Make this commitment right now. Stand up. But I don't want you to do that because of a social pressure, 
Because if 10 other people stand up, you feel this pressure. Well, I should stand up. He's the preacher. He's the president. I better stand up. So I'm not going to do that. Because I don't want you to make a commitment that's based on social pressure. I want you right now to make a commitment that's based on conviction in your heart. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. How will I know that you've done it? How, how do you answer yes? I would challenge you to simply on a piece of paper, any piece of paper, a scrap or whatever, write these two words, I will, and put that in my box. I'd love to see what happens. I hope you'll take me up on that challenge. I will. Write that down on a slip of paper. Put it in there. We're going to close with this. This is a little song that I learned a long time ago when I was a student at Montana Bible College. And uh, it's simple, and it's based straight out of Jesus' prayer in John 17. I'm going to sing it for you because you don't know the tune. Listen right now. It says this. Pray it with me. Father, make us one. Father, make us one. That the world may know Thou hast sent Thy Son. Father, make us one. Try it with me together. Father, make us one. Father, make us one. That the world may know Thou hast sent Thy Son. Father, make us one. One more time. Father, make us one. Father, make us one. That the world may know Thou hast sent Thy Son. Father, make us one. And in that spirit of the victory of Christ that we sang about at the beginning, we know that that's possible. We know that we can live that out. We know that that's who he's made us to be. There is nothing that the enemy can do that can stop that. Amen.